Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. I'd like to welcome on the show right now Dr. Kishore Mabubani, of course, no stranger to those of you in Singapore that know of his good works at the Lee Kuan Yew School and, and now, of course, being a distinguished uh, professor as well. Kishore, welcome to the show today. My pleasure. Happy to join you. Fantastic. Hey, Keyshort, let's talk about uh, what we've just been seeing. Of course, Joe Biden just came on and uh, mm-hmm. was talking about uh, building, rebuilding America, unity, mm. coming together, getting rid of this mm. idea of the, the, this past mm. era. And how, how, how did you receive his comments and, and the news that he will be the 46th president? Well, I actually, I happened to catch him just after my jog on East Coast Park, as you know, where I've seen you sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it was actually generally Genuinely, both the speeches by Kamala Harris, and I got the last part of her speech, and his speech, they were both very inspiring speeches. And he used four keywords. I'm not sure whether I remember them correctly. I think they're decency, fairness, science, and hope. And I think those are all things that uh, America needs to bring back because uh, decency and fairness, I would say, disappeared in the last four years. Yeah. And we definitely need to bring it back. And I think we mustn't underestimate the structural challenges that America faces that he has to deal with. Yeah, there will be a lot that that he has to everything from COVID to the economy to all of that. And and if we look at, uh, you know, where you where you intersect with so much of American life, Mm. and that is the the public policy Mm. standpoint, how would you expect Mm. that a that a Biden administration will interact differently with the Singapore government than what we've seen in the last four years? Well, I think certainly, I mean, to be fair, the Trump administration wasn't necessarily bad for Singapore. As you know, the Trump-Kim meeting in Singapore put Singapore on a world map. Mm. And the at the same time, I think the Trump administration was completely unpredictable. You couldn't tell day by day what they were going to do. And when, when Trump pulled out the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was a major, major uh, blow to the region. Because you know, that, that, that agreement had taken so long to complete and was genuinely a geopolitical gift to the United States of America. Mm. And by pulling out, basically, America gave a geopolitical gift to China. So I think uh, he's got a, we hope that some of those things will come back But at the end of the day, it's much easier to deal with a stable, predictable administration, even when you disagree with it, than to have one like the Trump administration, which you couldn't tell day by day what they were going to do. And certainly the the, the U.S.-China trade war was very damaging to the global economy, very damaging to the regional economy, and so some degree of the, the U.S.-China geopolitical contest will continue, as I discussed in my book, as China won. But how you manage that contest is also very important. The relationship between Beijing and Washington, Trump has been – well, Trump has been a lot of different – has had a lot of different mm. relationships with China over the past four years. Mm. Uh, the latest one, of course, is a, chilled, a chilling one. Uh, but he has yeah. pushed things like IP protection and obviously the trade war and, and quotas and mm. things like that. Would you expect a Biden administration to carry on with some of those policies or to change directions? Oh, I think if Joe Biden is seen to be soft – on China in any way, he's dead. He'll be killed. Mm. Because there there are very few things in the United States on which there is a clear bipartisan consensus. 
And one of the things on which there's a clear bipartisan consensus is that the time has come for United States to stand up to China. I mean, and again, why that happens, I've explained in my book, as China won. But in that context, it's very important for Joe Biden to at least publicly project himself as being tough on China. And certainly China has made mistakes in the way it's handled the U.S. business community, it's unnecessarily alienated it. And so on mm. things like intellectual property, on technology transfer, on uh, creating a level playing field for American businesses in China, I think you can push for that. And the good news is that the Chinese also realize that they have made mistakes in their handling of American business, and they were, they're ready to compromise uh, with the uh, Biden administration. And so it will be in China's interest to work with a more rational, predictable uh, Biden administration, because at the end of the day, the Chinese believe that time is on their side. So let's keep the waters calm as long as possible. Yeah. How about other issues? Like when we look at the South China Sea, we look at uh, North Korea, uh, all of these mm. issues that, that Trump has in some ways touched on, but really has not moved the ball forward from the U.S. Mm. perspective in any kind of resolution or any kind of stability. Mm. What do you think Biden will do with that? I mean, he, clearly he understands he's been on Senate committees and, and, and in power mm. long enough in Congress that he, he understands mm. what these issues, how important they are. Will he jump into those right away or will he wait maybe preferring to deal with some of the domestic issues first? Well, I think on North Korea, I would say Trump at least deserves a gold medal. And I'll tell you why. No other American president had the guts to meet face to face the president of North Korea. I think, you know, Bill Clinton wanted to, but he was afraid he'd be crucified. I think Obama was afraid he'd be crucified. So the fact that Trump was brave enough to meet the North Korean president, actually, by the way, step into North Korea, mm, mm. <laughs> the demilitarized zone. Right, right. You know, quite remarkable. So, I always believe, you know, I was a diplomat for 33 years, you know, as Winston Churchill said, it's better to jaw, jaw rather than war, war. The fact that he started speaking to North Korea is a very positive thing. And but, I think we have to give it to him. But some people Even would say I that he gave up a, an important bargaining chip by doing that so soon without getting anything in return. Uh, no, I think actually, you know, when you when you start talking, you never give up anything. Talking is always the first step you have to do to at least begin to make sure you avoid the worst case outcomes. So I, I disagree with all those people who say that talking is bad. Talking is just like you and I talking now. Mm. That's a very good thing. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> but on, on, on South China Sea, I think what we, what we would like to see from the United States is a very much clearer policies on where the United States stands. And I think it's in the interest of the United States to work with the ASEAN countries rather than to try and jump ahead of the ASEAN countries. And if the United States and ASEAN can work together and try to find solutions to the South China Sea, rather than try to find it as a, a means of embarrassing China, I think then you can try to find some solutions. And certainly for a start, a code of conduct within ASEAN and China would be a great leap forward. And that's something we should push for. And, and you think the, the U.S. can and should be at the center of that effort? Oh, the U.S. can help so that it should see the South China Sea issue as an area where U.S. diplomacy uh, can be helpful rather than one where you're just trying to embarrass China. As we are 
looking at this conversation of what's been happening in the U.S., you have been involved in U.S. politics, the political scene, I should say, between Singapore and the U.S. for decades now. Were you surprised at all about how uh, how contentious and how close this election became uh, in the U.S.? Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, I must say, I you know, I thought the pollsters would have some good idea of what happened. Of course, we all remembered what happened in 2016. Mm. And we thought that they had learned the lesson from 2016. <laughs> they'd be more careful in their predictions. And I think if anyone had told me, Kishore, I'll take a bet with you that Donald Trump will get 70 million votes, I would have said, no way, no way, I'll take a bet with you. I would have lost money. <laughs> because nobody, I tell you, nobody anticipated that Donald Trump will get 70 million votes. And I would yep. say that's the number one challenge for Joe Biden going forward because it shows, even though he got 74 million and Joe Biden and Donald Trump got 70, it shows how divided the country is, really very, very badly divided. And right. his first mission, which he seems to understand, is to heal the divisions and bring the country together as he said, no more red states, no more blue states, just the United States of America. That's his number one challenge. Yeah. And, and will that come down to uh, his ability to set the vision or will it come down to Republicans, act, you know, frankly, in the Senate, if they do control the Senate, coming back and saying, OK, look, you know, we do got to come together because of these major issues. This is always the push and pull, isn't it, in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, a president of one party and control of Congress from another mm -hmm. party? Yes, yes. I mean, that, 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 as you know, there are two schools of thought, uh, frankly, in the United States on this. Uh, number one, many people believe that actually a divided government is good for America. So, for example, if the Republicans control the Senate, then uh, it'd be very difficult for Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, mm. uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to push Biden to the left because he'll say, excuse me, I can't because uh, I have to deal with the Republican Congress. So in that sense, there might be a more centrist government. But at the same time, I do think that the Republicans have, a, unfortunately, a, what, I, what has been known as a scorched earth policy policy. Mm -hmm of not refusing to cooperate and refusing to come and uh, at least meet uh, a democratic administration halfway. And the lack of bipartisan policies at a time when America needs to heal itself is very, very uh, dangerous. So I would say, frankly, Biden's number one challenge is to persuade his former colleagues in the United States Senate to come in together and work, for, work with him. And I think the world will be happier to see a, a higher degree of bipartisan policies, uh, especially towards the rest of the world. Then America becomes more predictable. Yeah, of course, we saw the Senate very much uh, and Mitch McConnell shut down Barack Obama and anything that he mm. wanted to do during eight years. And exactly per his his. Uh, you know, what some people said was his aloof style and not, you know, reaching out in the right way to Congress mm. early on. Uh, one would assume that Biden will have a different approach based on his decades in uh, in the Senate. Yes, I, I think that that is uh, Joe Biden's uh, biggest uh, advantage. You know, I've never met him personally, although my uh, some of his friends are friends of mine. Mm. The one thing everyone says about him is that he's a genuinely nice guy, and he he reaches out and uh, he can he can connect with people. 
in in a big way. So I think that that's going to be his number one uh, challenge. And I hope at least some Republicans will step forward uh, to work with him. And frankly, at the end of the day, if he can get three or four Republican senators uh, to work with him, then maybe he can get his policies through. Yeah. As you well know, there's over 4,000 American businesses based here in Singapore. Many Singaporean companies have offices and dealings with trade in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we look at the the Biden policies toward companies, let's just say the bilateral trade relationship between the U.S. and Singapore. It's a very important relationship and has been for decades. Uh, this uh, The Biden administration would already know this, right? And they would be working or at least looking at some point toward making sure that that relationship stays solid, would they not? Yes. Unfortunately, the good news is that uh, Singapore's standing uh, in Washington, D.C. is very high. It really is amazing. And I I served in Washington, D.C. from 1982 to 84. And I can tell you, Singapore is very low down the rankings in the list of the most important countries in Washington, D.C. But since then, we have sent very good ambassadors to Washington, D.C., Tommy Koh, S.R. Nathan, Chan Eng Chi, Ashok Mirpuri. <laughs> no, no, I was the deputy chief of mission. I was ambassador to the U.N. Yeah. But I, I used to deal with Washington, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the important thing is that we send very good people there. And, and also, Singapore's standing in the world has gone up. So I think it'll be uh, Singapore won't have too much of a difficulty uh, making a transition towards uh, close ties with the Biden uh, uh, administration. And certainly, one of, one of the most shocking statistics is that um, the the American businesses have invested invested more in Singapore than in the rest of Southeast Asia combined. Mm. I mean, that's an amazing statistic, you know. So it shows you that American business has got a very powerful stake in Singapore's uh, well-being, and that's a very powerful incentive for good relations between the United States and Singapore. Yeah, good to hear. We'll hope that carries on. We're speaking with uh, Kishore Mabubani, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute at NUS. And uh, when when you look at Kamala Harris and her story, uh, being the first person of South Asian descent, obviously the first woman of color in the White House. What kind of a signal does that send to uh, boardrooms, to uh, political entities around the region, not just Singapore? Is this, a, is this America yet again sort of raising the bar for others to look at when it comes to how they think about women in, in halls of power? Well, I think certainly. I mean, I can tell you that I, I was genuinely inspired when Barack Obama became president of the United States of America, I never thought in my lifetime uh, I would see an African-American uh, becoming president mm. uh, of uh, United States. And Kamala Harris' success is, is so in some ways quite remarkable because the first woman vice president ever mm. <laughs> in the history of United States of America is not a white woman, uh, not a Hillary Clinton. Yeah but actually uh, a woman from the minorities. And what, what makes her success even more remarkable is that, well, of course, she has to project herself as an African-American because the African-Americans have a bigger constituency uh, in the United States. I think by, uh, this, she cannot say this publicly, of course, but from what I can tell, she was much closer to her mother. Mm-hmm. As you know, her parents separated and she was closer to her mother so I suspect in her heart and soul, she's more Indian 
than uh, African-American, although she'll never admit this publicly. But what's even more remarkable is that her mother is Tamil. And as you know, mm. the majority of Singapore's population is Tamil. Mm. And frankly, <laughs> if a Tamil becomes president of uh, United States of America, <laughs> before uh, uh, Tamil becomes prime minister of Singapore, which is a much larger Tamil population, <laughs> it's a real, it's a real signal of how remarkable the United States is in its ability uh, to absorb minorities. But having said that, of course, uh, there are also, there's also, as you know, very, very strong opposition uh, to the minorities now among the white working classes. And that those divisions have to be healed also. Yeah, you've, you've thrown down quite a gauntlet there to uh, Singapore, uh, whether you've realized it or not, Kishore. I, I, hear, I hear rumblings. Uh, I feel buildings shaking around me. <laughs> so good for, no, I good think, for I you. No, think, I think, I think we, we, live, we live in a world of possibilities and we should, we should embrace those possibilities. Right, sure. And of course, when you see the the caliber of of someone's character and their ability to get yeah. the job done, and that yes. obviously is is something you know Singapore, based on being a meritocracy, and the and the U.S. has yes. always always championed that uh, mm. you know a- anything truly is possible, right? That's right. <laughs> One would hope, anyway. Uh, Kishore, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for being with us today. Kishore Mabubani, the uh, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute at NUS. Always a pleasure to talk with you. The author yeah. of How Has China Won? I assume I think that book is even more uh, more important now as we look forward to the next four years than, it, uh, than at any time before. So good luck uh, with people yeah. having a read on that and, and taking what you have to say. Look forward to having you back, though, again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.